Welcome to The Technology Pill, a podcast that looks at how technology is reshaping our lives every day and exploring the different ways that governments and companies use tech to increase their power. My name is Gus Hossein, and I'm the Executive Director of Privacy International. Now, as regular listeners know, we use this podcast to relish in the details and the complexities of what it means to navigate tech and policy issues today and to hold powerful institutions to account. This time, we're talking about a major legal case that PI has brought with Liberty in the UK. The case essentially challenged the UK's domestic intelligence agency, MI5, and the government minister with oversight over MI5, being the Home Secretary, who oversees the Home Office. And after a three-year legal battle, we uncovered long-standing concealment of unlawful conduct and massive over-retention of data by MI5. The tribunal in this situation, the Investigatory Powers Tribunal, held that MI5 and the Home Secretary broke the law. And we have our guests who are going to help us into the weeds because these are true legal nerds. So while I'm sad not to have Caitlin joining me today as my co-host, I am so honored to have two guests with us. First is my very good colleague, Noor Haidar. My name is Noor Haidar. I'm a lawyer with Privacy International, and I was part of the legal team that worked on the challenge against MI5 and the Home Secretary. I tried to do the proper pronunciation <laughs> thing, and I made a mess of it. I'm I, think it was, I think it was pretty that. good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And we're also very grateful to have Meg Goulding from our peer organization, Liberty. I'm Meg Goulding. I'm a lawyer at Liberty, and I was the solicitor instructed on the case against MI5. So we're going to talk through the case, and we're going to try to explain some of the interesting facts that have been uncovered, and we're going to talk about the judgment itself and what it means for the fight against mass surveillance, whether it's in the UK and internationally. Let me set the scene. It's practically a Shakespearean tragicomedy, in fact. Our little play takes place in this country, the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. The primary actor is the UK government. While the UK loves to promote itself as the birthplace of parliamentary democracy, as we encounter almost every day living here and also working here on policy issues, we often find it to be quite, well a basket case when it comes to accountability, and particularly when it comes to one institution of the United Kingdom government, which is the Home Office. That is, the UK government consists of a number of very powerful government departments, and one of its most powerful state offices is called the Home Office. Now, to non-UK listeners, that's a very odd-sounding name, but it's akin to Well, I guess if you take your Justice Department, your Interior Department, your Immigration Department, and your Homeland Security Department, and you roll them all up into one and put one politician in charge, that is the Home Office. And that one politician in charge is called the Home Secretary. We've had so many run-ins with the Home Office and the Home Secretary over the years. I do struggle not to swear when I talk about them, but my colleagues here are so much more professional, and I look forward to seeing how they navigate the challenges of that. Because the political elite know that the Home Office, with all of its power and of all of its bureaucracy and all of its institutions, is a mess. 
And the, the way that the UK political elite deals with this is that the most controversial thing ever said about the Home Office back in 2007 by its then head politician was that it was not fit for purpose. Nothing ever happened after that. And in fact, it was given more power and more institutions, but that's just the way things work. So there's the UK government with the Home Office. That's the first actor. The other actor is a UK intelligence agency. And in this particular play, it's MI5. You may have heard of MI5 because, well, there's something about UK intelligence agencies that Hollywood loves. But just to clarify, this is not the James Bond intelligence agency. That's MI6. And it's not the agency that's listening in on everything because that's GCHQ. And GCHQ is often the villain in our plays, but not today. This time we're talking about MI5, the interior, the domestic intelligence agency. And then for some listeners, you may think, What's a domestic intelligence agency? Because in your countries, the idea that there's an intelligence agency listening and acting internally that is not called the police is a strange thing. And you're right, it is a strange thing. But again, we're talking about a very strange place, being the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. For those of you with Apple TV subscriptions, you may recognize MI5 as the institution from the TV show Slow Horses. Now, just three final actors in this play. There's a tribunal that, let's just say it's a legal body called the Investigatory Powers Tribunal to whom we take cases when we are concerned about the conduct of surveillance in this country. And I'll let my colleagues talk that one through. Then there's PI, Privacy International, who I work for, and we often take cases to the Investigatory Powers Tribunal. And then the final actor in this play is Liberty, the UK's leading civil liberties organization. And it's been around for like 80 years fighting the fight because, again, sorry to say this if you are a nationalist, but this country is a bit of a basket case when it comes to civil liberties and holding government to account. And we are so lucky an organization like Liberty is here and is doing its job and we get to work with them. So... That was a long setting of the situation, but there we are. Meg, of all the things that Liberty could be working on in the UK at any moment in time, of which there is just so many problems when it comes to holding the government to account, why did Liberty want to bring this case and how did it come about? It's great to be with you, Gus. The reason for bringing this case really was to hold MI5 and the Home Office to account for what turned out to be really extensive wrongdoing. And ultimately, the hope, which we still hold on to, is that going forwards, this case will be the impetus to improving UK surveillance safeguards to finally better protect everyone's privacy in the UK. But taking a step back and thinking about how this case first started, it was really quite fortuitous, actually, that we came across the facts underlying this case. And it was really only because Liberty had another case on the go, in which the government had obligations to be honest about what it knew about what was happening at MI5, that we ever found out about what was happening. And I often wonder, you know, what would have happened had we not had that case on the go? Would the facts of this case still be unknown to the public, which is a 
horrifying idea, really. So what happened is back in 2019, we were preparing for trial in another of our surveillance cases. That case is our judicial review challenging the Investigatory Powers Act, or as we like to call it, the Snoopers Charter which is the UK's surveillance regime. And just a few weeks before trial, deep in preparation, the government informed us and informed the court that it had suddenly become aware that MI5 might potentially be in breach of some really serious surveillance safeguards. And oh, by the way, this might have been happening for many years. The irony being, of course, that we found out about it almost the same time that the Home Office found out about it and the surveillance watchdog found out about it. So we absorbed that new information and tried to argue in that case that the evidence of MI5's breaches meant that the Investigatory Powers Act, the Snoopers Charter, was unfit for purpose or another reason. Again, that really rude term, not fit for purpose. Yeah. And yeah, for, for non-UK listeners, that's a very strong statement of saying something's severely broken. Yes. And what we were saying with MI5's breaches was, look, we've been saying for a long time that the safeguards are rubbish as they're written into the Act. There's not good enough stuff in the Act itself. But with MI5's breaches, we were taking it further and saying not even what's in the Act is being followed. Even these really minimal, poor safeguards aren't effective in practice. So there's no protection here, whether in law or in practice. What's really interesting about this is that none of this is surprising in the sense that the Investigatory Powers Act was passed in 2016 Mm. and it was the UK government claiming it was updating its safeguards, but really it had been caught out by the Snowden revelation for all the things it was doing wrong. And so then they thought, okay, well, we need a new law. And all they did in that new law is that they put into law all the things that they were doing wrong. And even when they were called out by parliament, again, great parliamentary democracy, the whole idea that parliament holds the government to account. Parliament said, whoa, 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 there are no privacy safeguards in this entire piece of legislation. So what did the government do in response? They renamed a section called privacy safeguards. They didn't change any of the content of the bill. And then parliament was happy enough to endorse this piece of legislation. It became the new, as you say, snoopers charter. Yeah, I think it's section two of the Investigatory Powers Act, which makes reference to privacy. There's the word privacy in there. It says something like, you know, in actions within this act, you know, that's not this wording, but attention must be given to privacy at all times. Oh, well, thank you very much. The amount of times that that section is cited as a kind of forgive us for everything on the part of MI5 or the government is astonishing, really, in, in all of our surveillance cases. So going back to... That separate Investigatory Powers Act challenge, we made that argument relying on the evidence that had just come out. And unfortunately, the court did not agree with us. They said, you know, what's happened with MI5 is really serious, but it doesn't go to the question of is the regime itself unlawful? It's just wrongdoing. They failed to follow the regime. So this case that we're talking about today was really just a second attempt at justice. And... I'm interested to hear what Noor has to say, but I don't think even we anticipated when we started this case that it would draw out as much evidence of wrongdoing as it eventually did. The scale, the seriousness of wrongdoing at the highest levels, at MI5's board level, at the Home Secretary level, was astonishing. And so I'm grateful that the truth has finally come out 
and that there has been some accountability for what they did wrong. And I also think the case has, or I hope the public feels like, it's underlined the dangers of mass surveillance once again. And what can go wrong when you put so much power in the hands of the state and they can collect our data and we trust them to comply with the law and we trust them to be honest when they're not complying. I think we've learnt from this case that we can't trust any of that any longer if we ever did. Yeah, it's the old adage of like, trust but verify. What you've just described is that there's an unverifiable process yeah. that upon which this trust is reliant. And so the whole system is broken. Nor, I think it kind of speaks for itself, but why the heck is PI involved in this case? Yeah, so thanks, Gus. Thanks, Meg, for that great introduction into the case. Just for listeners, this case had been running for three years. And so every time we got new disclosure, which showed more and more how at the highest levels MI5 knew about what was going on, we would just read this disclosure and think, how is this ongoing for so long? And how did they, in these emails and internal notes, yeah, well, this is going on. Let's think about it, <laughs> essentially. So to give some background on PI's involvement in the case, we go even further back to around 2015, which, as Gus said, was a political moment when the public around the world, but also in the UK, were asking questions about the extent of security and intelligence agencies' powers. At this time, the agencies publicly disclosed for the first time that they had been acquiring, using and sharing what is known as bulk data. So to break that down a little bit, you know, the acquisition and use of bulk data is effectively mass surveillance. It's untargeted and, you know, within this data is what we call in the intelligence agency nerd world, <laughs> bulk personal data sets and bulk communications data. So I think maybe people's eyes gloss over when we start using this kind of terminology, but it's really important to understand that bulk data sets include everything from passport information to travel data, finance and banking information, commercial activity, really all kinds of information about who we are as people. And bulk communications data, which is more of a term of art, is about data that relates to all kinds of communications, but not the communication itself. So for example, if you think of a phone call, bulk communications data can include who the person making the phone call is, how long the phone call went on for, where the phone call was made from, and things like that. And of course, it includes online communications like emails and all kinds of messaging. So if I could just situate this in an example, it's like if the government decides it needs to investigate the conduct of criminal John and they decide, okay, this is how we understand how things work in countries with the rule of law. They have to apply for permission from some overseeing body and say, okay, we want access to John's driving license information. We want access to John's transactions from his bank. We want access to who has John been speaking to. Let's ask the telephone company for John's communications data. As he's been speaking to Mary, he's been speaking to Matthew. I'm running out of names for some strange reason. And they're very biblical. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so that's how most people understand investigations take place and how government policing bodies get access to data. But what you're talking about is that at a bulk level. So this is buckets of data, 
but they shouldn't have this data unless there's an investigation. That's the confusion here, isn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, that's exactly the issue. And that's kind of the basis of our fight as Privacy International against mass surveillance. It's this idea that bulk surveillance is not something that is compliant with the right to privacy and it's not necessary to protect national security and everything that flows from that. And one of the important things to mention about bulk surveillance is that by the security and intelligence agency's own admission, the majority of people whose data is caught by bulk collection are unlikely to be threats to national security. So that just means that they hold these databases full of our information when there's no threat coming from the people whose information they hold. So the background is that in 2015, we challenged the lawfulness of the powers which allowed for bulk collection. We can call this PI's bulk data collection challenge. And what it was a very sexy term that is. <laughs> we, can, we can come up with a different name for the podcast. It's if you're in the PI office <laughs> and somebody mentions this, oh, we, we're, we're fascinated and just focusing. But yeah, it is a mouthful. <laughs> um, but effectively, you know, it was very complex and had a lot of stages. But what's important to mention is that the outcome of that case was the tribunal said, okay, the UK has all these bulk surveillance powers, but you know what, they're lawful and in accordance with domestic law and human rights law because of the safeguards that exist, because of these great safeguards that they say they've been implementing. Look at all the evidence they gave us. There's just so many safeguards. (laughs) And then we found out from Liberty's case that actually a lot of these safeguards in practice were not being applied. So we joined the case in order to be part of the challenge and also request that the court reopens our earlier case. And so again, just to help listeners who like me are not lawyers, who perhaps like me learned everything they know about the law from watching movies and TV shows. What we do here in this podcast isn't what happens in TV shows and in movies in the sense that we're not here to say, oh, this was a huge win, and say all the ways it was a huge win. Rather, we want to explore how confusing it is a situation. And you've already got the confusing situation to begin with, which is there's a law, but it's not really a good law. It has safeguards, but they're not really safeguards. The government follows the rules, except it doesn't pay attention to the fact that the rules are being broken. And even when it does, there's a tribunal who's supposed to be there to listen, but sometimes... Well, we're often before that tribunal asking, like, don't you agree with us that this is on the face of it such a problematic thing? And the tribunal has this faith in this system that, as I said at the beginning of this podcast, is not really a well-functioning system. But having said all that, we have a judgment. And it's a big win for privacy rights. And if you want to really get into the weeds of the judgment itself, you can go to our website and all the links will be with the podcast. And you can follow the links to our Q&A there where we really go into detail about it. Let me ask you, Meg, can you tell us why you think our audience should care about this case? And what does it mean for MI5 to not handle data lawfully? Firstly, I just want to encourage people to care about surveillance and privacy, even though it doesn't happen in front of their face. I think this is the thing that the government relies on so often is people can't really see the harm with it. It's not tangible. And so we can get away with a lot. And so even though we can't see it, let's all start caring about it. 
And the reason we should care, and it's already been well articulated by Noor, is that under the Snoopers Charter, our current regime, anyone can be spied on. My data, your data, the listeners' data can be collected, it can be stored, it can be examined, it can be used against us, even when we've done nothing wrong. And for years, Liberty and and many others, including Privacy International, have been calling for a targeted system. So a system where if you've done something wrong, yes, in certain circumstances, maybe you can be spied on. But the rest of the ordinary folk in the UK and abroad can't be spied on by UK state bodies. But we're also realistic. And, you know, mass surveillance is, for now at least, here to stay. So if we are going to have a mass surveillance system, let's at least tighten our safeguards and our oversight system. And in case it's not obvious to the listeners what safeguards mean in the surveillance context, really by that we just mean the rules around when and how surveillance can happen and how can our data be stored and handled. And I think what happened with MI5 and with years of law-breaking and knowledge of law-breaking and non-reporting of law-breaking, no clear example can there be really of that urgent need to improve our safeguards because the current system just doesn't protect our rights. And because MI5 can collect anyone's data, it's potentially the listener's data that's been unlawfully retained for years when MI5 had no right to hold on to their data. So the listeners' privacy and free expression rights have been violated. And it's clear to me that everyone should care about that. I would also add another point, which is that I think this case is really important from a rule of law perspective. And that's something we're talking a lot about at the moment in this country, because depressingly, rule of law is not something that this government always respects. Parliament granted state bodies like MI5 its very wide-ranging surveillance powers subject to them complying with legal safeguards. They don't have a right to exercise those powers unless they comply with the safeguards. Now, MI5 repeatedly through this case kept saying, our mission to protect the UK trumps our need to comply. We'll try and comply. Don't worry, we'll try. But at the end of the day, if it's a decision between what we want to do to spy and complying, we're going to pick the first. And I think the tribunal's judgment is a really important reminder that no state body, even if you're MI5, acts above the law. Although, having said that... um, I thought you were going to say that. (laughs) I am worried by the Home Secretary's response to our judgment. She put out a written ministerial statement and the last line of that statement said that she would work to ensure that the use of surveillance powers is quote as compliant as possible as compliant as possible Apparently, that's the best that we can hope for oh man if i could do my taxes in the same exactly. way could you imagine? <laughs> yeah so the necessity of legal compliance astonishingly is perhaps still something that we need as Liberty and Privacy International to reinforce. Okay, I, I'm trying not to swear because you, 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 it's a red flag to a bull once you start talking about Home Secretary saying stupid things. But it's odd that our sector, being the human rights sector in this country, gets vilified so often for being radicals. When 
all we're asking for is that the laws that are written, even though we might disagree about whether they're good laws, we just want them to be applied and for that to be meaningful. We essentially want our political leaders to be held accountable. How is it we're the radical ones when the most powerful politicians in the land can say things like that and get away with it? It blows my mind. And it's also they have their cake and eat it because in our other surveillance case, a challenge to the Snoopers Charter, their barrister, the government's lawyer, will stand up in court and say, world-leading regime, look at all these amazing safeguards back off court. And the court backs off. And then the other side of it is, oh, we don't really follow them, though. (laughs) (laughs) You can't have your cake and eat it. They're either world leading and you follow them and Mm -hmm. we have good structures in place or you ignore them and then something's fundamentally wrong. And we've learned through this case, it's the Latin. And we also know at PI that it's not world leading. No, exactly. But they can get away with it. There's something about that where time and again, The British government says we have the world-leading safeguards regime. And it was only six years ago that they finally accepted judicial authorization for interception of communications. Like That is like the standard in even the most undemocratic countries, that you actually have to pretend you go to a judge and get a warrant in various countries. And in the U.S., it's practically in the Constitution, the Bill of Rights. But in the U.K., with our world-leading regime, we had to pull teeth for my entire career, practically, just to get judges involved, even though it's a weak process. Anyways, I got to stop. Nor, if you could extend what this means internationally, because as we were just saying, you know, the UK pretends it's the best in the world, but the UK also sets an example of what not to do, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have to think about the nature of counterterrorism policy, which is inherently international. When you look into the way that counterterrorism policy is set at the national level, it is always informed by what has been going on at the UN level. And as we know, that's often informed by, you know, really big actors, especially on the Security Council. So when you have a system of mass surveillance, which exists in the UK and is justified on the basis of safeguards, which we have seen are not effective in practice, and then the UK works bilaterally to pressure other countries to implement similar systems, whether it's through advising on legislative implementation or actually transferring surveillance. So transferring technologies, transferring training, basically saying that countries should have things like biometric identification systems. While those countries might not even have the legislation or the paper safeguards that we've been challenging here, that's really problematic for what is going to happen in terms of mass surveillance by governments. And You know, just thinking more broadly about this quite simple position, which often comes up, which is that it's either privacy or security. You know, it's this assumption that the actors who are infringing our right to privacy are always going to be acting in good faith. And that's just not how democracy works, right? We don't just put blind trust in powerful institutions. And, you know, building on what we've already said about the intrusions on our right to privacy and how that impacts all of our other rights, especially our right to freedom of expression. I think there are other scenarios where people don't realize how much privacy they expect 
in relation to the data that's being collected about them. So a really simple example is legal privilege. Nobody expects that their communications with their lawyers, you know, whether it's your divorce lawyer or your wills and estate lawyer, is going to be held and looked at. Same with your medical records and your mental health records. Now, in the case, MI5 did say that they don't hold medical records. But what we're talking about more broadly is the fact that there are supposed to be safeguards around this kind of personal data and they're just not being upheld. And so we need to think more broadly than this kind of basic pitting one against the other. Exactly. It, it's this, this whole idea that there are good guys out there and there are bad guys out mm-hmm. there and our intelligence agencies are the good guys and they should be able to have access to the data and do as, well, they see fit because it's not what the law says. It's a fairy tale world of good guys and bad guys versus what we want to see, which is, yeah, your data is sitting in databases, whether it be your bank, whether it be with your doctor, or whether it be in hospitals, or your telephone and internet provider, but that data should be locked down and not accessible to anybody, whether it be a fraudster, or whether it be a criminal of other sorts, or an intelligence agency of a foreign country. And let's be honest, that's the world that we are in today, where you know we should be as worried about fraudsters trying to steal your data to get access to your account as you should be worried about whether those fraudsters are state-sponsored. That's the world. Mm-hmm. And so that's why we need to make sure where our data is, it's kept secure. And it doesn't miraculously end up in an intelligence agency, whether it be yours or somebody else's. That's why we have rules. That's why we have security safeguards. That's why we have technical safeguards. And yet when they behave this way and they imagine that they had this right to have bulk access, they want to undo every single safeguard from that technical level to the legal level in order to get that. Yeah. One thing that I find helpful when trying to understand the harm that mass surveillance creates is the comparison between the physical world and the digital world. So in the physical world, we understand that we draw lines. You know, we could put a camera in every person's house in the UK, but we all agree that that would be ridiculous to do because we live in a democracy. We don't live in a police state. But we need to draw those same lines in the digital world. The same rights are at stake. And going back to the point I made earlier, you know, just because we don't see it happening, we can't see the camera in our house doesn't mean the same level of intrusive data about our really intimate personal lives isn't being collected. It is being collected. We just can't see it. Exactly. The ability to set boundaries and observe the boundaries being accepted is so key. It's interesting. Yesterday was Safer Internet Day and my son's school had some content from a website in Pennsylvania about how kids can be safe and secure. And it was all about boundaries. It was all about setting boundaries and making sure your boundaries are clear and everybody observes that. Mm. Like if kids can get this, why can't (laughs) politicians get this? And and an example I was just reading about today is that you don't realize until the hits the fan and people from Hong Kong who fled Hong Kong when the security law was being enforced and have relocated to the United Kingdom, they banked with HSBC and HSBC was called out yesterday in the House of Lords the great institution of democracy in the United Kingdom, for the fact that HSBC won't let the people who've relocated from Hong Kong to the UK get access to their accounts because Chinese law has changed and said you have to have a valid ID in order to access your account. 
And the ID they were given by the UK government is not considered a valid ID in order to access their own money in their own account in the Hong Kong Shanghai mm. Bank of China. And it's like, this is ridiculous, mm. but this is how the rules that are set have to be audited because mm. all of a sudden you wake up one day and because of this data-driven world where law is enforced by tech and you can wake up to a new regime, you can't access your pension. This is why we need safeguards. This is why we need parliamentary processes. And this is why we can't trust on the face of it what an intelligence agency says. Yeah. And unfortunately, what a home secretary says. The other thing that really annoys me is the use of the data-driven world and social media and the fact that people share a lot about themselves online now as a basis on which to then take it to its conclusion and carry out mass mm -hmm. surveillance. The fact that we have social media and that we post about our lives doesn't mean we've lost the choice about what information we share about ourselves and with whom. We have that choice on social media. And yes, some people might be choosing to share a lot, but they're still choosing to share. It's a fundamental part of being free to have that choice. And when you choose not to share, you choose to keep something private. That's not sinister or suspicious. That's again part of being free. But it's too often used by the government as an excuse. Oh, people share a lot so we can take everything. And it's just a ridiculous way of arguing. Yeah, I don't see people on TikTok sharing their passport identification <laughs> numbers for the purpose of sharing it with MI5 with the hope that MI5 will crack down on terrorism. Yeah. And in fact, the last time I heard that politicians in the UK and the US were angry about TikTok and where the data may go and who it may be used by. So it, it's interesting how we call out others, but never think that we may be the bad guys. So now let's nerd out about the case. Meg, starting with you, what do you think are the most important facts of this case? Before I start with the facts, I just want to make a preliminary point. It's been incredibly painstaking to just get the facts out of MI5 and the Home Office. So publicly, those two bodies will say, we welcome the ruling, we welcome these proceedings, you know, we've engaged properly with them. And am I allowed to swear? Yeah, you, That's you, you are. <laughs> <laughs> From our experience of three years of taking them to court just to get the facts out. So they resisted releasing documents, which turned out in the end to be super important to the judgment. And they were really hesitant to share any facts about the breaches and the way they were dealt with in their legal pleadings. So even now, even with the judgment, there are certain facts like whose data was unlawfully retained, how much data was unlawfully retained that we still don't know. And that's incredibly frustrating. Having said that, we do know some things <laughs> that I can share with you. This all started at least as far back as 2010. So 13 years ago, MI5 first discovered systemic compliance failings across its data holding systems back in that year. 2014 was when they had started to seriously fail to comply with retention safeguards. So they were unlawfully retaining data that they shouldn't have been retaining. And at that stage, crucially, MI5's 
management board was aware of those serious failings, but not doing anything to sort them out. Fast forward a couple of years, 2016, you have this astonishing internal legal paper written by a senior MI5 lawyer that refers to how MI5 holds its data in, quote, ungoverned spaces. Ungoverned spaces. And that's a good example of where it was fought. MI5 and the Home Office really resisted that document coming out. And we finally got hold of it and got them to unredact bits of it and learn this information. Yeah, that's a really important point to make. Sorry to interrupt, Meg. But the first disclosure is often heavily redacted. There is then a painful process where the solicitors and the barristers go back and forth arguing about what should be redacted and on what basis. And then we get the same document afresh with some redactions removed. So although it's fun to nerd out on it, the process is really difficult. And the court has previously said that they're very grateful to claimants for pushing these points across so that what can come out into the public does come. Yeah, it's a really important point because had we not pushed back on redactions, this case would look really different at this stage and the judgment would have been probably very different, at least the public version of the judgment because part of it has not been published. So that was 2016, ungoverned spaces. The following year, 2017, another internal MI5 document refers to MI5's data holdings as akin to the Wild West places. <laughs> oh, see, I, I'm getting really, really angry hearing this because this timeline you're giving, I match it with what I know was going on in the public sphere, which yeah. is 2010, there was an election in this country where the new government, which was a coalition, had come to power with a very firm agreement that the landscape had to change when it came to surveillance. They got rid of a number of databases, they abandoned the ID system, and they said that this was going to be an era of protection of freedoms. And instead, in the back offices, these institutions are still doing their thing. Then you say 2016, where they're talking about ungoverned spaces in the back room. In the front room, we're having a national debate about what is the legal regime of safeguards. And we have the UK government politicians and others saying this is a world-leading regime. But in the back office, it's like smoke-filled chambers and they're just wheeling and dealing. Yeah, a couple of the most astonishing documents to receive and read were letters that were written from MI5 to the Home Office at the time that the Investigatory Powers Act was being passed in 2016. And those letters said, uh, yep, don't worry, Home Office, Everything looks fine and dandy back in MI5's data holdings. We are ready for the Investigatory Powers Act. We are ready to be in full compliance with all of these new safeguards. And we know, and the tribunal has pointed out, thankfully in its judgment, that that just did not match up with what was known within MI5, what internal papers were saying. So MI5 was promising they were going to be able to comply with what I would call a pretty bad piece of legislation, a weak set of safeguards, and weren't even able to do that. So they were lying to their political masters at a time when this great democracy was having a debate as to whether or not this was a good legal regime. That is so freaking insincere. Yeah. 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 And also in Liberty's other case challenging the Investigatory Powers Act, the Snoopers Charter, MI5 put in a witness statement into that case, which it's now admitted was inaccurate. So in that witness statement, it also said 
that MI5 had great holding systems and was in full compliance with the Investigatory Powers Act. And again, that's at a time where within MI5, it was well known that that was untrue. We still don't know how that ended up in a witness statement. And we don't know the identity of the person who gave the statement, but it's going to be someone senior. It's a director at MI5 who will have had knowledge of what was going on and still was inaccurate to the court. I'm laughing as Meg speaks because I have the great fortune of being able to not just work with lawyers, but I get to go drinking with lawyers. And I love how measured Meg's language is about untrue versus what we hear when we're at the pub. Yeah, hopefully the tone of my voice can indicate my true feelings about it. So taking you back to the timeline, if I can. Of course, please, sir. 2016, ungoverned spaces. 2017, Wild West places. And then we have a process starting from 2016 where MI5 let the Home Office in a little bit into what was happening, but not much at all. So they gave some notice to the Home Office that there were red or serious compliance risks. But the Home Office sat on that. They didn't inquire into what does that mean? Does it have an impact on your ability to apply to us for surveillance warrants? Should we still sign off on surveillance warrants? Because in the Investigatory Powers Act, for those that don't know, the Secretary of State cannot sign off on a surveillance warrant unless there are arrangements in place for ensuring safeguards are met. And again, to contextualize, that is a politician signing warrants, which for most listeners across the world would be saying, what? And they can't even get that process right. And just a footnote here, while it comes to my mind, MI5's argument in our case was, tribunal, even if you find against us and you find that we have broken the law, you shouldn't order any remedy. You shouldn't dictate that things happen off the back of that finding of unlawfulness because it would have happened even if the Secretary of State had known about MI5's breaches. They still would have signed off on warrants because of the mission to protect yeah. the UK. I was astonished that they made that argument. I know that's how they feel, but putting it in writing, no clearer indication that they think themselves above the law if they're saying to the tribunal, even if MI5 had been honest with the Home Secretary and the Home Secretary had known about the extent of the breaches, the scale, the seriousness, she or he would still have signed off on warrants unlawfully. Extraordinary. Yeah. I guess they just think they can get away with this mission-driven idea, which is we're here to save the planet, and so it doesn't matter what we do wrong. But then why bother having rules? Why bother having lawyers that work in the intelligence agency to make sure there are rules? Why bother reporting to your political masters if the rules don't really matter? And why have political masters? And then we see, oh, this sounds like a different country. Why have the Human Rights Act? Why have human rights if we should all just trust the government to act in our best interests? So going back to the timeline. (laughs) Yes, please. um, (laughs) The Home Office knows something, but doesn't know the full picture, doesn't ask any questions, continues to, to grant warrants unlawfully. And it's only in 2019, five years after MI5's board knew that it was seriously failing to comply with legal safeguards. Did MI5 finally brief the Home Office and the surveillance watchdog? But even then, they don't provide a fully candid picture. They provide some selective facts to their oversight bodies. 
Later in 2019, the Surveillance Commissioner produces a really damning decision on what MI5 had done over the years previous. And he noted the, quote, undoubted unlawful manner in which MI5 had stored our data. And then he put MI5 in, quote, special measures. So that indicates the seriousness of what had gone on. Also in 2019, an independent review set up by the government in response to MI5's breaches concluded that there was a culture of accepting and permitting unlawful conduct at MI5. So what's astonishing to me is how MI5 maintain that no officers at MI5 at any point did anything wrong. To the extent they admit anything, they say it's a corporate failing. Yes, maybe we should have realised what was going on sooner. Yes, maybe we should have told someone sooner. But no one did anything wrong. That's just not sustainable, that kind of statement, in light of this report, which says culture of unlawful conduct. For an agency with extraordinary powers. Yeah. The ones that we at least see. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So just to round off the timeline, where are we now? MI5 and the Home Office say everything is fixed. Oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, thanks for joining us on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> However, it won't surprise you to hear both Liberty and Privacy International have serious concerns that remain. I mean, you only have to look at some recent inspections carried out by the surveillance watchdog on MI5 to be concerned in those inspections the watchdog says mi5 is still not even aware of all the data that it holds and it can't give assurances about its compliance with safeguards i mean no wonder if it doesn't know what data it holds so while we're hopeful that this case leads to you know improvements and safeguards in law and in practice there's still a lot of work to do to even convince these bodies having dragged them through the courts for three years to even convince them that there's still issues at hand. Meg has outlined the very interesting facts that we saw on this case. I will take us back again to the bulk data collection case that I mentioned because it's quite relevant to the facts that were uncovered in this case. So an example of one of the interesting things that we read within this disclosure was that internally MI5 was admitting that within specific technology holding systems, they didn't really have an understanding of what was held in there, right? So in our case, we argued that we don't know what's in there, but probably it holds bulk communications data and bulk personal data. The response from the other side was, no, it doesn't. And we argued that that's, again, not sustainable. Even if it's bits that were collected from bulk communications data and bulk personal data, that's kind of the same thing. So that takes us back to what had happened and what the IPT said in our older case. So an interesting quote from that case, the court found that one of the most significant points at which there can be an interference with millions of people's right to privacy arises from the retention and use of data collected in bulk. So it is at that point that safeguards must be applied, right? So in that case, the IPT placed a lot of reliance on the fact that these safeguards were being applied. For example, in trying to show that the safeguards were being complied with and that they were adequate, 
MI5 and the security agencies went to great lengths to put that into evidence. They even made statements publicly before parliament saying how every six months bulk personal data would be reviewed by agencies' panels. They had different review periods depending on how intrusive or how sensitive it was. And they publicly said that data sets that were found to not be of operational value would be deleted. It was clear from our MR5 case that retention, review and deletion policies were not being applied to huge amounts of data. So you can see this like basically huge rift between what was disclosed in that case and what was found and the truth, which we've now been able to see. So because of this, in the MI5 case, the tribunal did find that MI5 breached what's called its duty of candor, which is basically its duty to be honest in court proceedings in our previous case. And it's really important to mention that in these cases, we rely a lot on these public bodies complying with their duty of candor, right? Because we have no other way and the public has no other way of knowing what's going on on the inside. So MI5 breached its duty in this case, and that was based on all the facts that we've just discussed. Nor, again, as a lawyer, you so delicately put it. We entrust these agencies with vast powers. You know, back in the old days, it was physical powers, and now there are digital powers. And going back to what Meg was saying, as listeners well know when it comes to data, you don't see the abuses when it comes to data. You don't see the data even being gathered. And so at least we should have rules like the 2016 law. And at least when the rules are questioned by political masters, you should have honesty. And at least when a tribunal is involved, the institution shall speak with, as the lawyers call, candor. And yet they were doing none of the above. And so this is why I love the way you just put it, Nora. The very foundations of the argument of excess, which we still fundamentally disagree with, that it's okay for the state to have these powers. The tribunal says, but at the very least, they should follow the rules and be honest. But if they're not following the rules and being honest, then I would say they shouldn't have these powers to begin with. And most listeners would still have their minds explored by the fact that there is an internal intelligence agency that has data gathering capabilities, can do so in secret, and can do so in bulk. And they can't even be upfront about mm -hmm. it when they are told legally be upfront about it. And those are only the cases we know about. We know <laughs> that MI5 were not candid in Liberty's judicial review against the Snoopers Charter. We know they weren't candid in Privacy International's case that Noor has described. But what about all those other civil criminal cases in which MI5 have produced evidence? It's highly likely that because of their issues with their data holding systems and their inability to search those systems and find the data they need, that they fully complied with their obligations to those courts. Extraordinary. Well, there is a, a question that you know we talked about internally as well, which is, it's kind of a circular argument. The justification for holding bulk comms data and bulk personal data is we need it so that we can raise this evidence in these secret cases so that we can find these people but large amounts of them were unsearchable. We know that. The disclosure said that. So what's going on, <laughs> you know? It's either one or the other. Yeah, the poor reason that they give for holding the data doesn't even work. Exactly. Let us hold the data to search it for threats, but you can't search it for threats. <laughs> 
because we don't know what data there is. Yeah. <laughs> Why do we consider this a win? Firstly, we consider it a win because we won the legal arguments and finally got the ruling we were hoping for. MI5 and the Home Office broke the law. It's a really embarrassing ruling for them, I hope, and shows, as we've been talking about, that the government can't act with impunity, even when it comes to secret surveillance, that there will be eyes on them. But beyond just winning the legal arguments, I think getting the truth out there shouldn't be underplayed. You know, this was the public's data that was mishandled and the public should know about that. And without our case, I'm not sure they would have known. And, you know, going back to being hopeful, if we can, for a second. Absolutely. Um, you know, there is going to be an independent review this year of the Investigatory Powers Act, the Snoopers Charter. And so I hope that that reviewer will be looking at this case and thinking about what rewriting and improvement of safeguards needs to happen off the back. And I'm sure Liberty and Privacy International and many others will be telling them what the conclusions of the case are for safeguards. And finally, I think, and we've touched on this already, you know, having these concrete examples of state abuse of power when it comes to surveillance is really important to convey the harms of mass surveillance. Talking about it in the theoretical doesn't mobilise a movement for targeted surveillance, but moments like this where we can all be outraged together hopefully will mobilise that movement. So yeah, from Privacy International's perspective, we maintain that there are systemic issues with the Investigatory Powers Act, with the safeguards, and importantly, with the oversight regime. So Gus has previously explained that the Home Office and the Home Secretary have a major role to play in oversight. And one of the main findings, which we think is a big win, was that the Home Secretary should have made more inquiries into the failings when they were notified. And as a result, the warrants issued during that period were found to be unlawful. Of course, this is all wrapped up in quite technical legal speak, but a win against the Home Secretary for their failings to really uphold the law is actually something very major for us and for organizations and people who are seeking to hold the Home Office and public bodies more generally accountable for failing to act as they should, failing to represent people's interests, right? It is in people's interests for the Home Office to know that the agency that they have oversight powers over is actually following the law. That's why we pay our taxes. That's why we elect them. If they're not doing that, that's quite a big deal. So we consider that to be quite a big win. And more generally for the right to privacy, there's this idea that safeguards exist, but they actually have to be effective. And this is a really important ruling which bolsters that position from a human rights perspective. You can't just have paper safeguards. They need to be effective in practice. So we would like to also talk about, you know, the things we were a bit disappointed about, but maybe that's uh, for a later less happy moment. Um, the IPT decided not to award effective remedies. So we got what I think Meg might have mentioned as declaratory relief, which means that our request to, for example, quash the warrants wasn't granted. And that's 
slightly disappointing because that means that there's just less consequences uh, for the unlawfulness. But that's a much wider conversation. Yeah, and the irony isn't lost on us that one of the reasons that the tribunal only ordered declaratory relief and didn't go further with other remedies was because they said, look at the surveillance watchdog and all the great things that they're now doing to audit MI5 and to fix the historic issues. And of course, through our whole case, the point has been that no one spotted it for five years. And fine, in the end, MI5 told the surveillance watchdog and things were done. But until MI5 were honest, after five years, nothing was being done. So for the tribunal to say, you have an effective enough remedy with our declarations and with the surveillance watchdog now taking the steps that they're taking. Yeah, it's a disappointing place to be in at the end. Though I think it does not take away from the important establishment of the wrongdoing. Let me do something a little hazardous here. I don't want to impugn other nations and governments and states. But, Nora, based on our experience at PI working on these issues globally and how close up to this case you were and some of the insights you're getting from this case, is this failing a something's wrong in the UK and uniquely in the UK? Or is it this is how secret conduct begets secret activities, which begets secret compliance, which begets non-compliance. Is it a human problem or is it a British problem? It's a very interesting question, Gus. And actually, it's interesting that you ask, given that you are Canadian, um, because in our case, our council relied on a Canadian case with very, very similar facts. In the judgment, the IPT actually did bring up that case. And effectively, what the judgment said was, even if you're an intelligence agency with a very important role, you can't hide unlawfulness and non-compliance behind words like corporate risk or reputational risk. If you're behaving unlawfully, that's just the facts. And that's effectively what the court agreed with to an extent. So to answer your question, this seems to be a problem related to mass surveillance in a much broader sense. And particularly when you think of the Five Eyes Coalition, if you can call it that, Five Eyes Collective, they do hold themselves out to be different to undemocratic governments, to more authoritarian regimes. And of course, there's facts which support that. There is a big difference. But the closer we move to unaccountable surveillance or systems of surveillance and very broad powers for these agencies, the more difficult it is for us to continue maintaining democratic processes over them. And I think what we found out from the way that MI5 said that they were really having trouble kind of getting their heads around the data, it was too much data to understand, it was unsearchable, it was very difficult for them, really underscores the point that holding bulk data on huge databases is not an effective way of combating threats. It's a much broader point about our current culture of over-collecting and over-retaining data and personal data, which 
if incorrectly accessed and incorrectly used, does really undermine our right to be free, as we've said over and over again. Yeah, that nails like, every intelligence agency on this planet, whether it be state or non-state, are dealing with this hunger for data and are thinking that it's their right to have access to this data. Yet, even in a country as noble and <laughs> the creator of parliamentary democracy and would even be argued the creator of the rule of law, it's a struggle to get accountability for secret conduct. If you can't do it right here, who can do it right at all? So therefore, maybe it shouldn't be a thing at all. And that's fundamentally the equation at PI. We're not zealots with dogma. It's just we know how these systems work out and how these powers work out. And we just expect Oddly enough, like a tribunal would expect a level of candor about the fact that we live in a democratic society and we're all going to behave to a certain standard. And when they fall short and we have to work so damned hard and almost by accident, as Meg explained, by accident and pushing on a case that led to another case that led to this case, it's only then that we find out that the entire system we rely on is just oh, I can't believe I'm thinking of Kevin Spacey, but it's a house of cards, you know? <laughs> or like we've somehow unraveled the very thin thread that holds their entire belief that this thing is working together only to find out that when we unravel it, they know it's not working yeah. and they're not doing anything about it. Yeah, something we tried to do in our case as well was expand the scope of the case out beyond just the systemic issues that were reported finally in 2019, we said the case should cover systemic issues across MI5 and beyond just retention to other safeguards. We said the case had always been that wide from the beginning and MI5 fought us. And unfortunately, we ended up in the place of the tribunal saying, no, it is just about what was reported in 2019. And I'm speculating here, but I have this feeling that would MI5 have fought us so hard on the scope if there wasn't a load of sh happening elsewhere <laughs> as well? You know, these are just the issues that they finally reported in 2019 that we know about, yeah. as we say, fortuitously. This is also one database. What's happening in other databases? What's happening with other safeguards? I would guess the systemic failings that we're yet to uncover. So I suppose that's our work going forward. But it can't just be for organisations like Liberty and Privacy International exactly. to make guesses, to do investigative work, to push on those doors and hope they open. We should expect proactive reporting of compliance or non-compliance. Exactly. And that's the same with our partners in Argentina, our partners in Colombia, and I use those countries because there have been, in the last 10 years, huge problems with intelligence agencies and their conduct. It shouldn't be down to us well-meaning, under-resourced people who are yeah. often accused of being radicals to uphold the fundamental values of our society alone. It's a team effort and the intelligence agencies and parliaments and their overseers have something to do there. I think that's a near optimistic point that we can stop on. Thank yeah, you I, I both for you. joining us. This has been fascinating. And I love every time we get to peer underneath the surface of something and just see all the little scurrying that goes on about. It's one of the reasons I love working in the sector and working at PI. So thank you both for joining. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening. 
Remember, you can tell us what you think of the podcast by visiting us at pvcy.org slash tpsurvey. You can sign up to be the first to learn more about our work at pvcy.org slash pod sign up. And we'll include some links to relevant articles and information in the description wherever you're listening or on our website at pvcy.org slash techpill. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform you use. Music is courtesy of Sepia. This podcast was produced by Max Burnell for Privacy International.